you know, for all the, the bad news that we see, it is exciting to live in a time when there can be a range of different solutions. So I think nonprofit news is, is part of the new ecology and part of where we can expect journalism to come from going forward. Journalists have been pretty innovative when it comes to digital technology, but one thing that they still haven't quite figured out is actually how to pay for journalism. This week, we talked to somebody who might actually have a solution. I'm Michael O'Connell, and you're listening to It's All Journalism. Magda Konechna is an educator, a former journalist, and the author of Journalism Without Profit, a new book about the business side of journalism. Welcome to the podcast, Magda. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, now I'm going to start off with a snarky question. Isn't journalism without profit the current state of journalism? Or at least that's kind of how it seems. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that one before. You'll yeah. be surprised to know. I go for the bad jokes. I try, to get them out of the way. I try to get them out of the way early. But no, really, I mean, a lot of people are going to say that to you. What, what do you say back to that? It's certainly a valid assessment of, of what's happening in a lot of journalism. I think what's different here, and, and we'll get into the news nonprofits more in a minute, I think what's different with the organizations that I'm studying is that they're intentionally not for profit. So that means that it's in their DNA. They don't have shareholders who are waiting for, for a profit statement at the end of the year. They don't have kind of big corporations above them that are trying to produce a lot of profit. And so they are more rooted in the idea of journalism as something that is essential for democracy and kind of built around that concern. So before we get really into the book, I wanted to sort of ask you about your journalist journey. Now, you currently teach journalism theory and practice at undergraduate and graduate levels at Temple University's Klein College of Media and Communication. So what was the path that led you there? You know, I think like like most people uh, in this field and most journalists, for me, it started with high school newspaper, high school yearbook, and I went on to become a journalist. I worked in a lot of different places in Canada, where I'm originally from, and spent about four years at a little newspaper called the Guelph Mercury outside of Toronto. It was a tiny newspaper, and, and at the time that I got there, they did great work. My boss loved to say a thing that you say for editors all over the world love to say, or all over North America love to say, that we punched above our weight. But it was true. I mean, it was a small, active community, and we did really, you know, we covered it, I think, pretty well on a daily basis, and then also had time to, to do sort of deeper dive stories every few months or every year. And I watched that really shrink over the time that I was there. So I started there in 2005, and pretty soon... The deeply reported series that we had done every year became pared down. There were fewer and fewer people in the newsroom. And I started to really wonder, uh, you know, I'd learned in journalism school that journalism is essential for democracy. And if that's the case, then why were we letting the ad market and letting subscriptions drive what we were able to do? It didn't seem to make a lot of sense. And in Canada, there's a story that, that we all uh, love to tell about a bunch of grumpy guys who got together in Port Hope, Ontario, outside of Toronto, to come complain about their local newspaper every every week. And at some stage, each of them just decided to put in $100 and start a newspaper and see where they would get. They weren't officially a nonprofit, but they were certainly not part of a large corporation like their local paper had been, and they weren't operating within that profit motive. And they existed for about 18 months before folding. Hearing about that story and, and going and chatting with, with some of them 10 years later really made me think about what other ways could we support journalism that is so essential to our democracy. And so the, the ideas of this book really were born uh, kind of in my time at the newsroom. And I should just add as a, as a postscript that 
in early 2016, long after I had left, the Guelph Mercury closed, leaving Guelph without a daily news source. Um, there's a weekly paper, there are various blogs and websites, but nobody's covering the city hall meetings that I went to uh, regularly. And that's a pretty scary reality. Yeah, that is a pretty scary reality. I, I too, had a similar experience. I was uh, working at a I was an editor at a community newspaper, you know, starting in, in 2001 and, and, and through up into about 2010. And I saw that decline. You know, we were, we were producing newspapers of a certain size. We had a certain sort of philosophy about what we were going to cover and, and how, how, you know, how we were going to sort of embed ourselves in the community. And that just the papers shrunk, the staff shrunk. The ability to put out a, a weekly paper just became a, an endless struggle. I immediately identify with with the story you're telling, and it, it is it is kind of heartbreaking to see, you know, the, these whole strata of journalism disappear. I mean, you alluded to the fact that you know you know quality journalism is 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 essential for for democracy, and so you know you see nonprofit as a, as a way to sort of fill in these gaps and sort of sustain journalism at that level. You know, I think it's one way, right? And the book, you know, I was really inspired and hopeful during my field work and observing people working in various nonprofit newsrooms around the U.S. I should say that the book also is somewhat critical. I mean, nonprofit news is not sort of the only solution, but I think, you know, for all the, the bad news that we see, it is exciting to live in a time when there can be a range of different solutions. So um, I talk with my students a lot about how there used to be like maybe one daily paper and, and one newscast in town or whatever, and, and it's hard for them to even imagine those days. And actually, it's hard for me to imagine those days, even though I remember them, right? So I think nonprofit news is, is part of the new ecology and part of where we can expect journalism to come from going forward. So can you give me some examples of, uh, you know, some of these nonprofit models, you know, outlets, newsrooms that, that are sort of succeeding or at least maybe blazing some new trails in, the, in nonprofit? When, you know, my neighbors ask me, oh, what's that book that you've been working on? I tell them that I study groups like ProPublica, because that's the one that people are most likely to have heard of. So ProPublica was started with, with a big grant a few years ago, and they've been really successful at building a newsroom that does deep dive stories that sort of complements what's already happening in the mainstream media. And they publish those things on their own website, but they also encourage other organizations to republish that work. So ProPublica won its first Pulitzer in 2010 for a collaboration with the New York Times magazine, and that's a space where the nonprofit model for journalism can really shine, these collaborations and these co-published pieces. So, of course, most of the organizations that I've been studying are, are tinier and more marginal than ProPublica, so there are places like the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism, where I spent a bunch of time hanging out with Andy Hall, who left the, the Wisconsin State Journal when they closed their investigative desk and just wanted to create a space to do that kind of work in the state of Wisconsin. And his model very much relies on collaborating with and sharing stories with news organizations around the state of Wisconsin, places where that kind of watchdog and investigative work is not typically published. So that's a pretty interesting kind of model. And then there are places like MinPost in Minneapolis 
that is more of an online newspaper. So they're publishing every day. They're publishing a mix of work. They're not doing as much of that sharing and collaboration, although they're still, I would say, more collaborative than your average commercial newsroom. But they're trying to produce journalism without having that, that profit motive hanging over them. It's kind of interesting because it seems to be, you know, and this isn't the first time I, I've had somebody on the podcast talking about nonprofit journalism and different kind of business models. And it seems like things that sort of are working well in the digital environment that we're in now is, is this idea of, of identifying a certain area, you know, state politics or whatever, you know, public service crime or something. And then in focusing on that and then and then sort of making that like your brand and then somehow, you know, figuring out a distribution system. You know, you mentioned the one Minnesota one, which is able to do it as an online a daily, but then others seem to do really well in this, this sharing model. Does that seem to be the most successful way to do, uh, you know, this type of nonprofit? The thing that I was interested in when I set out to write the book uh, is what I've called public service journalism. And by that, I mean the kind of journalism that is necessary for democracy to function. Obviously, I didn't define the term public service journalism, but I'm trying to really focus on those things that citizens need to know in order to be well-informed and to be participants in a functional democracy. And so the question is, what is that stuff and, and who is producing it, right? So I think when I was a city hall reporter, going to city council meetings, to every single city council meeting felt really important, right? The TV station would come to city council when it was obvious that something exciting was going to happen. We covered city council at every single meeting, and things happened, and we discovered things that that we otherwise the citizens of Guelph would not have known. So being able to do that kind of sort of daily drumbeat of reporting is really important. And many of the news nonprofits aren't able to do that because of their sharing model, right? So I think the reason that you're seeing the sharing model arise is that the people who are starting these organizations have asked themselves, what is the biggest need in journalism? And they're finding that the watchdog and the investigative parts are the parts that are really being left behind as commercial news organizations struggle. And they're the parts that, that allow sort of a longer, deeper look at something and the production of something that, that other organizations will be interested in publishing, right? Now, this type of journalism also seems to be something that would be attractive to people who are organizations or foundations that are going to hand out grants that, yeah, we want to, because they're going to feel good about supporting, you know, public service journalism or, or watchdog journalism. Is that kind of what you saw as you were researching your book? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, the sharing model offers lots of reasons to be hopeful. It lets news organizations improve the content of their own work, right? So if you're reading the local daily newspaper in Janesville, Wisconsin, you might now come across good investigative work produced by the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism, and that's potentially really improving the quality of journalism where people already are, and also kind of fighting the partisan divide that we've been seeing in the media. And so that's the good news. The challenging piece about sharing is that you know, if you subscribe to, to your paper in Janesville, Wisconsin, and you read the, the content in there and you appreciate it and you think that you're supporting democracy by subscribing to the paper, you might not realize that there's this other entity, the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism, that's producing some of the quality work that's in there. So the sharing, uh, the act of sharing can sort of obscure where that journalism is coming from and make it hard for those organizations that are producing it to get donations from the people who are reading its content. It can also make it impossible 
impossible or nearly impossible to get any advertising revenue, right? So in the MinPost model that I described, they've decided that they're going to focus on trying to get donations from the audience and ads on their website, and that means that they need to drive traffic to their website. For the Wisconsin model, because they're giving their stories away and they're being published in news organizations across the state of Wisconsin, they can't really support it through donations or, or advertisements, so they're, they're relying heavily on grants from, from foundations. Now, a lot of these organizations have uh, had some degree of success in diversifying. I think the Wisconsin Center does now have some name recognition across the state of Wisconsin, and there are some dedicated newsreaders who do donate to it. The Texas Tribune is an example that people love to raise. They make, the last I checked, they were making a million dollars a year from events that they were hosting in Texas that were bringing in revenue and also supporting their mission of bringing people together to discuss local issues. So there has been a certain amount of diversification from relying strictly on foundations. But definitely most of these organizations, and especially the ones that distribute through sharing primarily, are heavily reliant on foundation funding. So does that then create sort of a, a problem in that, you know, obviously you're, you're, you're trying to create content that's attracting foundations in that one model. And in the other model, you're trying to drive page views so that that may actually, as great as, as we think uh, advocacy, or not advocacy, but public service journalism is, that doesn't always drive page views. So you're going to have to create content that is going to get people to get to that, whether it's features or sports or whatever. So those seem to be sort of limiting factors that work against these models, editorially speaking, I guess. Yeah, I'm not sure I totally understand your question. <laughs> so I think the the nonprofit model that is relying on on foundation funding is trying to get away from having to produce the range of content that is needed to get right. reader donations, right? So the Guelph Mercury had to produce sports stories and art stories and entertainment stories, as well as the City Hall stories, in order to to sell a product to readers. The Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism says, we're really concerned about the amount of public service journalism in the state of Wisconsin. We're not concerned about the amount of sports journalism. I don't know if you've ever been to Wisconsin, but there's yeah. tons of sports journalism. So they're producing that piece of journalism that's really essential for democracy to function, the public service piece, relying on foundations to support that, and then distributing it through an organization that bundles that content with the sports and with the arts and with the other things, which is the, the local news organizations around the state of Wisconsin. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Are there any limitations or ethical concerns that you can see with the nonprofit model? Sure, of course, and, and that's a really important question. People raise questions, rightly, I think, about the influence of foundation funding on content. So if you're a little news nonprofit, you might apply for all kinds of grants for particular types of stories because you need the revenue to, to produce journalism, even if those aren't necessarily the best kind of stories to be pursuing. Obviously, that's that's a concern. The people that I talk to talk about, you know, we do the journalism that we do, and we use that to apply for grant funding, and either we get it or we don't. That's probably mostly true, but if you see foundations soliciting grant applications for a particular kind of story, it can be tempting to pursue that funding, you know, not in any nefarious way, but because you need the money to do to do the work, right? So certainly that's a concern. Certainly the idea, the sort of role of foundations in journalism in the first place can be concerning. Foundations have a certain set of priorities, which may or may not be the priorities that news organizations should have, and we should definitely question that as well. The thing that I noticed in, in my research and, and that I talk a lot about in the book is that 
the sharing model in particular has some interesting limitations. So, you know, journalism faces all kinds of challenges and, and we can enumerate all kinds of problems with journalism. The broken funding model is just one of them, right? These news nonprofits that are producing stories and then wanting to share them, for instance, with the news organizations around the state of Wisconsin, are sort of limited in the ways in which they can innovate in journalism. Because in the, at the end of the day, they need to produce stories that could run in a bunch of different newspapers around the state of Wisconsin. And so some of the other concerns that we might have about journalism, some of the other things that we, we wish could change in journalism, the sharing model kind of limits that because they're still trying to produce stories that editors at newspapers recognize as being in line with the kind of content they're already publishing. So for me, that's the biggest limitation, that, that limit on innovation. I spent some time in Europe this summer interviewing news nonprofits there, and the, the people that I talked to had in some ways quite a different model that they were able to, because they weren't so connected into commercial journalism, they were able to do journalism really in different ways, in, in ways that engaged the community more deeply, in ways that really acknowledged the role of journalism, not just in producing stories and putting them in front of audiences, but in working to empower disempowered communities and disempowered people to better engage in, their, in the world around them. And so that was really interesting to observe. So while I think there are really important positive features of the sharing model, for instance, the fact that the stories show up where the audiences already are, I think there also are limitations. No, it's a really important conversation, and it's it's something that got that has a lot of nuance about it. You know, sustainability in journalism, and you know, all these different kind of kind of models. I think you know, people kind of want to hope that you can sustain commercial journalism because that's kind of what the model has has always been. And certainly, we've had you know NPR and and you know public television for a while, so people are kind of familiar with the idea of you know foundations contributing money and and people donating money to sustain this type of journalism. Do you see this as something that's sort of growing, or or is it just sort of a you know a little bit here, a little bit there around the, around the country? When I started thinking about nonprofit news in 2009, there was not a lot of it. There were a few legacy organizations like NPR, of course, is a nonprofit, like Mother Jones. There were a few investigative centers like the Center for Public Integrity and the Center for Investigative Reporting, which now does that reveal a radio show. But there weren't too many of them, and now there's a lot, right? Now everybody has heard of ProPublica. Everybody's heard of the Panama Papers, which came out of a, a collaboration run by a, a news nonprofit in the U.S. So I think that they're growing. I think that the field is maturing. There's now the Institute for Nonprofit News, which offers training and kind of enables organizations to swap best practices. So I think there's also the awareness of a field of nonprofit news. There are these organizations that see each other as their peers and that can turn to each other for resources and, and for support. You know, I think there's a body of organizations that are here to stay. I think there's a growing number of them. I don't know if that can grow kind of forever, right? Right. We need to grow more foundations, apparently, in order to support this, in order for, for this to s sustain. So, you know, how difficult is it, is it for somebody to launch a project like this, to come up with, you know, I want to I want to cover City Hall. I want to cover, you know, crime like nobody else covers crime in, in this large metropolitan area. You know, how difficult is it is for, for somebody to start something like that? You know, I haven't done it personally, <laughs> but I've talked to some folks who have. I think... I think the short answer is that it depends, right? It depends on the media environment that you're operating in. It depends on your own links to mainstream journalism. So Andy Hall at the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism 
had left the Wisconsin State Journal, which is the, the major paper in Madison, Wisconsin, and had a lot of links there. So early on, it was probably easier for him to get buy-in from, and sort of not just buy-in, but validation from that major news organization. And I think that made it easier for him to make inroads within other news organizations in the state of Wisconsin. I think for a lot of these organizations, you know, when I talk to, to the people who have founded them, they are able to take a year or two without pay. They have a partner who's able to support them for a little while. I mean, those are very real concerns, right? I think when you start something like this, you're you're probably not going to be making a salary immediately. And that's something worrisome, you know, the idea that journalism should be for free for a little while, right? That's certainly a barrier. I did a separate study with some with some colleagues uh, a few years ago where we looked at civic news websites, so not necessarily nonprofits, but of course including nonprofits, and we found that being connected to a university or other educational institution is really helpful. So more and more we're seeing that the, these links and these networks exist across news organizations and across other organizations that, that also are trying to create an educated citizenry, and that can be really helpful. So we've seen some of these news nonprofits be born or incubated within universities, like the Wisconsin Center is one example, that can also sort of offer resources, offer cheap labor in the form of interns, and offer a connection to the community that, that they might not otherwise have. So are there resources available for journalists who might want to do something like this? Or what would you tell somebody to do to if they were really kind of interested in doing this? Yeah, totally. So the Besides read your book. Uses- I'm sorry. <laughs> well, that's a good question. You know, the book is, is a theoretical book, right? Okay. If you want to start a news nonprofit tomorrow, my book might not be the place to turn to. If you're thinking of starting a news nonprofit, you know, a year or two from now, the theoretical argument is in the book. But the Institute for Nonprofit News is really a great organization, and they, they hold conferences, they hold workshops, um, and they also are linked into, I think they have about 125 members now in every state or, or almost every state, and they publish reports that make recommendations, that suggest best practices, that kind of thing. So they're a really excellent resource. And and one thing that I've I've found that's been amazing is that these folks who run these organizations, even though they're super busy and, and for many of them, you know, they used to be journalists and now they're the reporter and the editor and the publisher and the fundraiser, right? Their jobs are, are big and complicated. They're still very generous with their time, you know, in part with me, but also I've, I've definitely seen them uh, help out other folks who are interested in doing something related. So there are lots of great resources that are kind of growing around the country. So as an educator, you know, how well do you think, you know, J schools are, you know, journalism media schools are at incorporating this sort of nonprofit thinking in, in their curriculum? I was just sort of joking with my neighbor. I I teach a class called Business of Journalism, and frequently there are not enough students signed up to offer it. And and he said, wait, isn't the business part like the crucial part? Um, And it certainly is, I think, in journalism schools, and in particular for journalism students who are studying, you know, how to become journalists, thinking about that sort of meta level of what's happening within the news organization has not really become second nature yet. I think a place where schools and students 
have been doing well is in the idea of entrepreneurial journalism. There's now sort of a vibrant community of educators who teach entrepreneurial journalism. There's the the Taunite Center at CUNY that really has become a place of sort of building best practices and, and encouraging entrepreneurial journalism education around the country. There's a new great textbook. I used to use this textbook from 2010, which was really outdated, but there's a new one that came out uh, last year. So that's an area that's really growing. And, and the idea there is thinking about how to help students either innovate within a news organization that they end up in or start their own thing. And I think that's you know, one sort of rosy piece or, or, or one silver lining of the crisis in journalism is that I think we didn't really think that much about how how were news organizations structured? Where did journalism come from? I think that was something that the average audience member and the average journalism student just really didn't consider, even though it is important to think about that. It's important to think about what are the influences of advertisers? What are the influences of the community? And I think these entrepreneurial journalism sort of courses and this orientation is really helping students think about where does journalism come from? Where should it come from? What are the implications of that? I agree. I think that's that's really important. I mean, that's the thing, one of the things that gets me excited about digital journalism still is the entrepreneurial a- aspect of it. This idea that you don't need to have, you know, go work for some big structure, some big media outlet that's been around forever that you can, you know, if you have an idea and a drive to do something that you can create something yourself and grow it and hopefully sustain it. So Magda, this has been great and really enjoyed our conversation. I highly recommend the book. I'm almost finished with it. I'm a little nerdy about this type of stuff, but it, it's kind of a, a nice deep look at a really kind of an important type of journalism, journalism thinking that, that needs to be going on right now. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about good journalism. It takes a lot of people to put out our weekly podcast. Nicola Grisco edited this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Nicholas Hunter helped with our web content, and Amelia Brust helped with our pre-production. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Would you like to find out more about our podcast, including upcoming guests and possible live events? Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can also find us on Twitter, at All Journalism, and look for us on Facebook. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The Capital Culture Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Nania and Jason Fraley. We have a new podcast called Capital Culture. Each week we go in-depth with chefs like Marcus Samuelson and writers like Bon Appetit's Adam Rappaport. We'll also talk plays with Kathleen Turner, movies with Emma Stone, and music with Smokey Robinson. Not to mention some of your favorite WTOP voices. The Capital Culture Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast D.C.